0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascherinus and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single topic, think about a question and unpack the rest. This week, let's talk about control during a downturn. To me, it feels like there's this constant clash between investors who want more favorable terms and then founders who are kind of heading into protection mode and don't really want to take anything from anybody. So this week, I'm asking, how should founders and investors be thinking about the fine print in term sheets these days? But it's not my question. It's actually inspired by a piece that one of the newest TC Plus reporters, Becca Skutak asked last week. So we actually got Becca on the show. And so thank you so much, Becca, for joining and making your equity debut during a very wild moment in tech. No, thanks so much for having me. So, I mean, there's so much to get into, and I know kind of the biggest appeal of having the story and talking about it on the pod is on equity. So far, it feels like we're hearing about deals being pulled and being harder and looking differently on very macro level. But in your story, you really got into the literal fine print about what is changing in these term sheets and what investors want. And so, I want to get through the four big points you made. But to start, I thought we could maybe introduce you a little bit since you're one of the newest reporters on the team. Tell everyone a little bit about what you care about as a reporter and what you're covering for TC+.
1: Definitely. So I just started about a month ago, and I'm covering venture and startups for TC+, which spans pretty much anything in the industry. Definitely more of the analysis and sort of deep dive type stories as opposed to, say, some of the one-off pieces of news, but really kind of interested in things across the board. One thing I've just always been interested in in my career thus far covering startups and VCs are sort of the niche areas. I'd much rather talk to a $30 million fund that focuses on water startups than, say, maybe a generalist $1 billion fund Fun, even though I like funds of all flavors, but definitely <laughs> always looking for the niche and sort of the fun backstories hidden in the industry.
0: Yes. Okay. Well, that is music to my ears. Obviously, equity is all about numbers and nuance. So whenever we're able to like clearly talk about something, it just feels very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know, before. TC Becca was at Forbes. And so I had followed you while you were at Forbes. And I was very excited and, and greedy when I heard that you were joining the team because I was like, oh, she's one of my favorites out here. And at Forbes, you were doing more around newsletters, I believe, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you're on team. And I think that today is going to be the perfect debut of sorts because it's a lot of what we both care about. I also cover venture in the early stage, and we've been hearing a lot about how things are changing. But VCs are introducing specific language into term sheets as you report that are kind of helping de-risk some of their investments. So I wanted to start there and start about this idea of anti-dilution that you brought up in your story. How are investors protecting themselves from anti-dilution and why is that not something that's always been going on?
1: Mm -hmm. So dilution is a really interesting aspect of it because even though it's getting more structured now, this is one of the terms that I brought up that actually is always part of the discussion. From some of the people I interviewed, the lawyers, they said that this generally in Good times is like a conversation it comes up when you're talking about Parada and it comes up when you're sort of hashing out some of the other aspects of the term sheet, but no one really cares about putting it in writing if the company's raising at An astronomical valuation with plans to raise six months later at a higher valuation. Like you don't necessarily care as much if you're getting diluted when it's like it seems like the company is heading on a straight and narrow path to an exit. So it's like who cares if you have a lower stake if you're going to get a nice exit at the end to begin with. Yeah. So what's interesting now is some of the terms that are coming in, and the lawyers I spoke to did say that this market will downturn even if it does continue will be very different from 2008. So. Some of the terms, especially around dilution, that were more popular in 2008, they're not entirely sure how relevant they will be now, but they definitely can see investors really trying to put it in writing. So there's a few different aspects here. One would be broad-based dilution protection, which uses almost like a formula. Okay. So if a company were to raise like a down round and there was an existing investor who had a broad-based dilution clause... There's a formula that's like pretty standard you would use to transfer their shares. So
0: you would still... Okay, super interesting. Right. I was like, I had never heard of this. So I thought this was really cool. Right. And so you also... When did you start covering venture? Because I'm, I'm trying to combine our timelines to see if like we've both missed what the world looked like before there was a boom.
1: <laughs> oh, we definitely have. I started okay. in 2016. So yeah. like everything has just been up and to the right. I mean, March 2020, I was like, maybe I'll get to cover something going in the opposite direction. But I mean, like maybe for like a week. It was actually such
0: a tease. You're so right. It's funny because I feel like the pandemic was all about like formalizing relationships and Mm -hmm. a lot of like venture capital getting unbundled and rethought. So something like dilution protection coming into the mainstream potentially feels both like, yeah, we've been building towards like everyone writing everything out, but also very contradicting a lot of like the fast and loose investing that we both have been covering.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if they were to get this broad-based, this is technically more founder-friendly. So both of the lawyers I spoke to anticipate that if anti-dilution causes come on the table more frequently, it will be this broad-based dilution. So because they use this formula, some of the investors' existing shares will convert into a certain percentage of the new share price. So the company will still end up giving said investor additional shares for no additional investment, but it won't be as cut and dry as like, the price is this, so now they're getting this shares. Okay. Which, if that's the case, that's called full ratchet, which I guess was very popular in 2008. Yes. Lawyers are not as convinced it's going to be as popular this time around, unless it's like a distressed situation. But in that case, it would be an investor's existing shares convert to the exact Share price of the new round. So that could mean founders are taking, could be giving them quite a bit of additional shares for no additional investment, which would then take the shares away from like common shareholders as well as the founders themselves. So those are the two big ones.
0: Okay, you bring up a good point in talking about the kind of company that would pursue one route versus the other. Because I think a lot of times like when we are starting to see deal terms and this fine print show up in term sheets, it's not happening to every startup that's raising right now. It's either happening based on a VC changing their ways and having to answer to their LPs in different ways or a startup that's kind of in a predicament. But I don't know which isn't right now. So it's kind of hard to know who's seeing the fine print and who's not. Were you hearing anything when you were talking to these lawyers about the kinds of startups, either from stage, sector, or I guess financial backing that are going to be experiencing these kinds of deals? Yeah. No, they, no one
1: had anything. I asked about the sectors and trend type coverage and no yeah. one really had anything or hadn't noticed anything specifically yet. Okay. But one thing I did hear is they were saying in 2008, no startups could easily raise. So they were saying like even good startups were turning to say the full ratchet terms and things like that because investors really didn't want to invest in really anybody or anything, regardless of how strong like the company's fundamentals were. And they were saying that so far it seems like that will be different. Okay. Okay. If a company is doing really well, people are really excited about it and they really do have those underlying fundamentals, they were like, Full Ratchet will not come up in those conversations. And if they do, the founder could easily say no and have like no issue raising the round.
0: Okay, good. Good to know. I was going to ask another question, but I'll move us on to the next section before we talk about why funds would ever do this and how it impacts their reputation. But I mm-hmm. wanted to kind of go opposite of founder friendly, which is something you wrote about liquidation preferences. So in your story, you talked about how one lawyer is predicting that they will be more liquidation preferences that investors are going to be asking for. So usually it's the standard 1x liquidation preference, meaning if a company liquidates, investors get the money that they invested back. Mm -hmm. Now it may be kind of around 2x or 3x, which to me sounds insane to see such a wild markup. What else should people be thinking about when they're hearing about liquidation preferences? Obviously exits are always on investors' minds, so it's not completely surprising that those terms Mm -hmm. are going to get harder. Definitely. Something that came up in one of
1: my conversations was... Founders, if, say... A good investor wants to lead a round and they want to do like 2x liquidation preference. Obviously, that's less founder friendly than 1x, but if the company is doing pretty well and thinks they'll have like a pretty good outcome, even in today's market, they were like 2x, 2.5x. They're like, founders shouldn't be as concerned about that if that's like the difference between getting the round or not if the company does have the underlying foundation. So like, it definitely if your company's in trouble adding on some of those higher X, like they were saying in 2008 this one lawyer was working on Um, deals with like 10x liquidation preference, which is like, that's crazy. So it's like, that could be so detrimental. And like 2x has the potential to be a little harder on the founder in the event of an exit, but definitely lower than that. And yeah. if it's like the company's doing well, that is something where founders could be, it sounds like, could be flexible on without totally burning themselves. Okay. But one thing that was interesting is while I was reporting that piece, I talked to a guy named Latif Paracha, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He is a partner over at M13. Okay. And he was saying that liquidation preference, he would advise founders if they were raising and some of the investors wanted to do high liquidation preferences, that founders are better off raising at a down round Taking a higher valuation and adding some of those terms in. He was saying it may seem like a worse idea, just like the headline, the news today, but he's saying down the line, Mm -hmm. founders may be happier to go a route like that than to say add all these liquidation preferences kind of on top of the deal. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, it's kind of like such a reminder that, like, if you are in the pre seed and seed world right now, like your investors are probably working overtime to give you guidance in this way because I don't think it's super Mm -hmm. obvious to know as a founder which route you should take. I agree, down rounds still have like a really bad stigma but i guess to be a grumpy optimist as one listener recently called me i i was i was even thinking like okay, my investor believes in me so much that they have a 10X liquidation preference. Is that all at all a way that we can be reading investors being more greedy about liquidation, kind of like them believing more in the startups? Or do you think it's like, because I guess like my thing is like, why would a investor ever do that if they didn't actually believe that they could get a 10X investment, right? Is that too idealistic?
1: No, that is such a good point. Because I did think about that too, because it's like the investor is choosing to invest again in the company, which in theory... They don't have to necessarily unless like they're in one of these pay-to-play situations I know we're gonna talk about in a yes. little bit. That may be where this comes up more for founders who feel like they kind of have to participate even if they don't want to. But yeah, I don't know. Cause I thought about that too. Cause I was like, would this be better off if like the company did really well? Then they're getting all this like more money back in the exit. But yeah. I didn't get too clear of an answer on that. So I'm definitely not sure if there are some of those more like positive uses for it as well.
0: Totally. I mean, the last point I'll say about liquidation preferences is like, I don't know how much time you've spent with S1s. Mm. I, I feel like those ownership tables are always super depressing because you see how little a founder owns when the company goes public. And so it makes me think a lot about how those tables are going to look five or six years from now based on decisions that are being made today at companies.
1: Oh, I know. It's crazy how many investors are in each round now. I like can't even imagine.
0: Yeah. I mean, and in some ways I'm like, again, optimistic, take care, but it to be an early stage founder and seeing so much of this being talked about so loudly. Yes, down rounds have this like really hard stigma and things like ownership were kind of not being talked about super loudly over this last cycle. But I feel like it's a probably a really good time to be new and learning and get these principles in early. And I'm saying that selfishly because I'm like, okay, let me change my mind on what is considered growth. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, for sure. It's definitely going to be something that
1: founders are kind of learning on the fly. Yeah. But we'll be good to know, especially if like they end up going on to say found another company and like go through a couple market cycles. It's definitely like like good stuff to keep in mind.
0: Let's talk about the spiciest part of your story, I think, which is the pay to play dynamic that's at play. Um, and some of these term sheets. And also I have to say, you interviewed someone whose last name is Profit, which is amazing. I don't know how <laughs> you found her, but she seems great. <laughs> it's funny to be, have the last name Profit and like work with emerging oh my startups. God.
1: Yeah. Like, that's just so funny to it's me. like, I
0: do, I work with Profit. That's all I have to say. Sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about this. This was a little bit of like a uh, insane thing to read about.
1: <laughs> yeah, pay to play was easily the one. I mean, like full ratchet would have stood out to me as the craziest yes. term, but they were saying they don't expect it to be as frequent. So pay to play, I know for a fact is actually already happening because I was just chatting with an investor uh, about a month ago about other things. And they brought up this pay to play situation. They were essentially cornered into by a lead investor. And that's honestly what kind of gave me the idea for the piece originally, because they were like, I haven't come across this before. Like this is really aggressive. And I was just like, whoa, I have never heard of that. And pay to play isn't necessarily negative. So pay-to-play does exist and has existed in the bull market in different forms, different flavors. But what is starting to emerge now and what could continue to emerge can be pretty predatory. Mm -hmm. So I think the best way to describe it would be from the situation I was told about. So it would say a pre-seed investor on the board of the company. They invested years ago. The company is now going to raise, I believe it was their Series B, and the lead of the series B was like hey are you guys going to participate in the round and this fund was like oh no like we never follow on in series B like we're always just pre-seed to seed and then maybe we'll follow on the series A if we have high conviction the series B lead investors said well if you guys don't participate we'll probably wipe out like your ownership stake oh, so it's wow. like It can be related to pro rata, but like in this situation, it wasn't. Like the seed firm doesn't take, they don't ever exercise those rights at the Series B. They just It's usual, yeah. Yeah, they just don't invest that far down. Their fund's not, even if they wanted to, the fund isn't designed to follow on that late stage and all the portfolio companies.
0: So clarifying question there really quickly, mm -hmm. which is, so this was kind of like investor versus investor, right? Not investor versus company. Exactly. But I think it sounds like sometimes the founder
1: has to get in the middle. So similar to like the battle for Prada being technically investor versus investor, this seems to be similar in the sense of like, well, a lead investor could be like, well, these are the terms we're doing, or we're walking away, and then the founder can go to their existing investors and be like, well, this is the only way I'm going to get a round done. So you either have to like put more money in, or you're going to have to like not yeah be able to participate. One of the lawyers I talked to said this can get really dangerous or I guess dangerous isn't the right term, but interesting for especially early stage investors like this situation I just mentioned, because if the founder agrees to those terms and the early stage investor cannot put more money in, they can end up holding common shares in one of their investments, which is like, that's kind of crazy. But it's like that happens in pay to play. But in some senses, pay to play can be really mild. Like it can be okay, if you want to put in a certain amount of money, like, we'll just keep your existing rights, but if you don't, we won't. Or, like, it could come in a whole ton of different flavors, different intensities. But if a lead investor is coming in and the company really needs money and they want to exercise some kind of pay-to-play strategy, some of those early founders could be in a lot of trouble.
0: It's kind of, like, hard because part of it's, like, me not you know, ever being a VC. And so fond mechanics can still feel like this opaque world to me, but Mm -hmm. it is really hard to even imagine a Series B investor being able to just take someone out because they want to. I don't know why I thought that there was more protections there.
1: Oh, I know. That's because in theory, there legally are. Yeah. With pro rata and some of those other terms. But- I've been like tracking Parada for like a year and I, was about to say. <laughs> I found it it's just so interesting because it is always a fight. It's less of a fight now that because some existing investors are like willingly not fulfilling their Parada and a lot of rounds are inside and it's getting messy in a very different way. But yeah, that's always been a thing with parata Some people just like, there are multiple Series A investors that I won't name, but who I know come in and wipe the whole deck every time they invest. So wow. it's like every precedency investor doesn't get to exercise the prorata rights or they'll walk away.
0: Yeah, prorata yeah. rights is like a separate episode in and of itself. I agree though, it's kind of one of those terms that for some reason it feels like we're taught and startups are taught that it exists, people believe it, it's used, but in reality like a lot of firms have backed away from it, a lot of firms are like don't really have a policy on it. I remember there was kind of a trend of being like we're never going to avoid signaling risk, we're never going to do pro rata and and so mm-hmm. I don't know, it's kind of hard to I feel for founders right now trying to figure out the best way to approach stacking up those early ranks. Yeah, for sure. One of the
1: investors I spoke to said for years he's been telling the companies he counsels for to not put it in writing because he's like, you put it in writing and then you raise around in two years and we throw it all out and you discuss what you want to do and like, we don't know what the new investors will want to do. So it's like, what's the point of you putting it into the terminology to begin with? It's like, if no one, literally no one ever ends up with what they set out to be pretty much. So it's like, what's even the point of, you know, it's right. going to be a discussion. So like, just let it be a discussion.
0: Yeah, right. It's tough. I think like getting back to like this idea of pay to play. I'm thinking a lot about Tiger Global right now and how this one investor recently told me, uh, Sydney Thomas was telling me how like people think that it's really common for a Tiger Global to come in at the seed stage and then kind of follow on every stage after that because Mm. that is like the big allure of a multi-stage fund and like how great is that? You just check off all your leads for the foreseeable future. But then Sydney was saying how like she wasn't naming Tiger, but she was saying how that's is kind of a myth, like a lot of late stage funds mm-hmm. invest in that early stage and then forget that you exist when the partners get involved, they're no longer interested. And so it makes me think a little bit about like why startups can be more prone to something like pay to play as a result of feeling like all these multi-stage firms that became like these powerhouses during the pandemic, you know, suddenly are proving that they're not as powerful or involved as we thought. No, definitely. That's a big thing that came up and has come up in a few
1: of just like conversations, randomly over the last couple of weeks. It's just, there's been such a rise in just passive investors in general. I know Alex and I were chatting yesterday a little bit about like, what's going to happen to all the early stage companies who exclusively took money from like athletes and celebrities like are those people going to go to the table and fight for you to get these like rights if a lead investor Oof. comes in or like are they even going to be able to advise you on what to do because i know one of the lawyers i spoke to mentioned in a few deals he's done already the companies came off with like pretty decent terms and valuations but a few of them at least at least one had been backed by tiger and tiger was just like i'm not on the board i'm Oof. not going to come and like fight over this parade prerati- it's just like you're just a name in the book to them. Yeah, in a lot of cases. So it's like the pay to play thing could be really interesting there because some of those big firms that are really passive may end up in that common share space because they're not going to necessarily sign on to some of the terms that lean investors who really care about like the future of the company who are coming in or are just plain aggressive are going to like set forth.
0: Yeah, I, and it's kind of like I know we kind of started the episode talking about like fine print obviously in a literal sense here, because these are things that VCs are actually pushing for in term sheets, but there's like that fine print of relationships and due diligence that I'm now kind of getting the vibe of too. It feels like a lot of it's coming to like an inflection point. And I, I kind of wanted to end on this idea of operational control and kind of the opposite of a passive investor. But what happens if your investor starts realizing that they want to be in charge of when to hire you, when to fire you, salaries, I mean, all these things that they didn't really think about in the past. You kind of talked about this in your piece, but like, what are some things that, you are thinking investors are going to start caring about beyond the obvious. Mhm. Yeah, so definitely
1: I know it came up in a couple of the calls I had. Usually boards can essentially have higher fire higher capacity for like the C suite only. Okay. But they were saying in a time like this they would not be surprised to see boards trying to do say like the head of sales or the head of like marketing stuff that would be really impacted. In a time where stuff isn't necessarily growing, like, oh, you really would want someone really top-notch, leading your sales through a downturn sort of thing. So they were saying that might be an area where boards are trying to exercise more control and have sort of like a more of a heavy hand there. The other big area is debt. So they mentioned it's pretty common for there to be sort of terminology around how much debt a company can take on without asking the board already. Okay, But they were saying people may be more looking to sort of lower that Minimum. So, oh, maybe if it used to be if you take more than 100 million in debt, you have to run it through the board. Maybe now the board wants it to be like 50 million. So they could just have like more of a heavy hand on like what gets on the balance sheet and kind of how some of that stuff plays
0: out. Got it. Got it. Again, not a casual thing. And I kind of feel like all these things together are probably like the worst case scenario. Right. But startups are going to start seeing it sneak in in some way. And I mean, that's where I want to end. I want to end with how founders should be thinking about what's next and kind of like what the follow-up story is if we could play it out and draft it up in real time. Is it founders not raising VC funding for a little bit? In my head, I'm like, I feel like founders in the early stage are telling me that they still get to be super picky if they have Mm -hmm. good growth on their investors. And so are we going to see a lot of investors show their teeth and kind of lose the reputation that they gained over the past few years based on how aggressive they're being? Mm -hmm. No, one thing that came up that I thought was interesting that seems
1: like really obvious, but all the (laughs) lawyers recommended, they were like, actually bring the term sheet to your counsel Cause I guess when it's <laughs> <Ball> like, twist, <laughs> I know, like, I guess last year I'd be like, I mean, if someone's coming in and they're going to give you this crazy valuation and all this money and everything looks awesome on paper, yeah. some founders were just like not even running that stuff by a lawyer. If they were like, Oh, we raised two rounds before I know what I'm talking about enough. Like this looks great. Like yeah. all that stuff. So they were saying basic first level advice, like, Run everything through your lawyer. Really like ask them the questions. Maybe if you don't have counsel, like hire someone who has experience in the last downturn and can kind of maybe be more familiar with some of the stuff than you are. And that's probably like the biggest thing. But I really thought the down round thing was interesting because when the partner at M13, because he mentioned he was like, well, in a market like this, a lot of people raise down rounds. So he was like, once other people start raising a down round, like if that's going to save you from. Predatory de risking from the investors or sort of terms that could hurt you later on, that ends up making way more sense. And there is, as you mentioned, such a stigma around raising a down round when in reality, that is literally you still have investor confidence to raise another round. You're just doing it at less money. Like it's kind of like the whole concept of like divorce gets really complicated and messy, but in reality, it's literally filing a form with the city clerk if you <laughs> like, boil down it looks to like it that. <laughs> yeah I mean, so it I, feels kind of like that like down rounds it's like they can be really dramatic people can have a lot of feelings people cannot want to do it people can bring the stigma like all this kind of stuff yeah. can come up but in reality like if that's going to be the situation where you're choosing to have like a really complicated round or th- terms that'll follow you forever in the startup life cycle or you could just raise at a lower valuation it's like just
0: raise at a lower valuation It's like my whole thing is like who told everyone that like the only way to build a startup is up and to the right? Like it seems very natural for things to go up and down the entire time. I mean, natural is is one way to describe it, but also like the way business works. So I'm like, I agree. It's like, yes, the down round disagrees with a lot of like startup PR, but it doesn't disagree with how startups work. Like In fact, it very much feels like something that should be happening right now. And so I guess I do have some hope that we're going to see a little bit of humility and vulnerability in how startups kind of pursue the next few months beyond cutting employees. Because this partner, the fact that this partner even said something like down rounds, you know, I would suggest come to take them feels very new to me yet again. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: I know. And it really is crazy because if you think about it, if you do take the down round and the company is still growing and you just maybe raised that too crazy of an evaluation last year or something similar, it's like you're still getting investor capital to grow. That is not a negative. Like this isn't, distressed capital like this isn't you know like a saving grace kind of thing it's literally like a these investors still see your success and like still think you should raise and continue going so it's like if you're just raising a down round just because you raised a too big of a valuation last year like that's fine
0: I mean, I hope that's what they do, honestly. I think about all these layoff stories that we've been working on and I'm like, okay, the layoffs are like that first story we all write, but what are companies actually doing when they're all kind of saying the same boilerplate language, which is like, we want to get to self-sustainability. We want to deal with this market turbulence in a different way. Mm -hmm. In my head, it's like, they're probably going to go heads down now, but for the few that choose to raise, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm kind of just hoping that like, they don't just stop and turn inwards, but they actually like, keep doing stuff that shows that they're beyond cutting employees. I hate when this conversation starts at just cutting employees because it's like, that was not, that will not fix your business.
1: Right. No, it'll be, I really liked the Twitter space that Walter hosted a few days ago because he was talking, I guess with someone else at M13, which is kind of funny, but they were talking about (laughs) how- Okay, I should talk to M13 more. (laughs) The trap of like laying people off to get to a better financial space on paper when you know in a year you're going to have to hire some of those roles back. It's like that model just- I mean, sometimes, obviously, the company doesn't know. Right, And they don't know how they're fast going to rebound, and, like, you know, that happens. But, yeah, that's definitely an interesting aspect of it, being like, why wouldn't you— maybe try to approach it in a different way than just like laying off people you may literally have to hire back in 9-12 months.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It feels like a workaround and something that like you're just doing to like kind of make your investors happy or yourself happy. But yeah, I don't know. It's a lot there. And I wanted to end by talking about founder friendliness and how optimistic we feel about founders having choices going forward in these deal terms. Is it going to be the ones that are growing? I know we kind of talked about there's no clear sector that's going to be getting hard deals going forward, but Maybe even saying this out loud and just hearing the examples of language that might show up might help kind of founder friendliness stay (laughs) defended in some way. Mm
1: -hmm. Anecdotally, a sector that looks like it's like not, I mean, crypto and Web3 somehow... Double like,
0: valuations
1: I'm like, I know. Somehow they're gonna like weather the storm, no matter what it seems. But, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, we definitely just jinxed it. So there we go. Okay. <laughs> Becca, Sorry, you, Becca, your debut was amazing, and I'm not just saying this, but I learned a ton, and this really does change the way I'm thinking about companies closing rounds right now. And so I think that's a huge service to the audience. And I'm so glad you wrote this piece. Come back on equity anytime. You were fantastic. No, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. All right, well, everyone else, you will hear from us on Friday and that's all from us from now. Bye.